All right, well, we are heading down the home stretch now. I'm fairly confident you're getting sick of looking at me, so I will try and dispatch this if, uh, with all due speed. But conversion and evangelism, this is really in some ways where the, the rubber hits the road, right? When we're, when we're thinking about evangelism, we're, we are aiming for conversion. And so if we don't understand conversion properly, we won't do evangelism well. We may not even do evangelism at all. Uh, before we talk about how we evangelize, though, I just want to point out, in light of the doctrine of conversion, it's worth mentioning at the outset that the very desire to evangelize is, in and of itself, one of the fruits of our, of our new life in Christ. You see a, a pattern for this in the, the story of Philip in John chapter 1, in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Or you see it again in the story of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Her encounter with Jesus transforms her. It makes her into a missionary. She goes to the townspeople to declare, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Jesus found Philip. And Philip went and found Nathanael. This woman meets Jesus and then she wants everyone else to meet him. Now, admittedly, it's hard for us to know when or whether this, either Philip or this woman were converted, but, but we can say that their encounter with Jesus turned them pretty quickly into evangelists. And I think this is important because a lot of times when we talk about evangelism, we talk about it as if this, it was this really difficult and unnatural thing to do. You know, I think if your church sort of ranked all the, the things you talk about in like descending order of, of favor, you'd get like the tithing sermon and the evangelism sermon like right next to each other, right? Uh, we tend to talk about it as if it's like, ah, gotta go evangelize or else Jesus won't be happy with me, right? But that's, that's not actually how it should be. Now, now that we have new allegiances, we, we have new motivations. Now we're compelled by love to, to take the gospel out to, to others. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so we've got two good reasons to be passionate evangelists. Because at our conversion, God, we, have, we have new loves. We love God and we love others in a way that we didn't before. And so we're passionate to see people come to Christ because Christ is worthy of all worship. The, the, the world around us is robbing God of the worship and glory and honor that he's due and as his people who love him that grieves us that moves us out with, with the gospel word and the call that, that all men everywhere should repent and believe and as those who now have been given God's love for the lost for other people we, we understand that the, the most loving thing we can do is tell someone how their sins can be forgiven and how they can be converted how they can know God and be his child I remember once our next door neighbor, an old man, we had lived next door to him for 
15, 20 years, and I, I was a kid, but at this point was growing up, and I remember I was in the, the, uh, the driveway, and we shared a driveway, and he was standing out there, and we were talking, and, and uh, his daughter had just become a Christian. And he said to me, uh, he said, you know, Mike, one thing I really appreciate about you and your family is you've never really, never tried to push your religion on me. You've never really even talked to me about it. And we're thinking, ah. And I said, I, I totally get what you mean. Like, I understand why you're glad we haven't. But I said, I think you'd probably, if you understood what we, what we really believe is true, you'd actually be hurt. You'd actually realize that we haven't acted in love towards you at all. Now, the good news is his daughter actually led him to Christ before he died, and so grateful for that. But I remember being pierced by that, thinking, yeah, what if, what if the people around me knew how little I loved them, that I wouldn't even share uh, this news with them? J.I. Packer has written that the wish to win the lost for Christ should be, and indeed is, the natural, spontaneous outflow of love in the heart of everyone who is born again. The wish to win the lost for Christ should be and indeed is the natural, spontaneous outflow of love in the heart of everyone who is born again. And so there's going to be people in our churches who struggle with guilt because they don't evangelize, who don't know how to evangelize very well. So what they need to know is that God loves them. They actually need to know that Jesus loves them even if they don't evangelize. And so they're not out earning his love by sharing Christ. They need to understand his love more fully. And then they need to obey and go out with the good news uh, to the world around them. But that's all by way of prelude. What I, what I really want to think about with the remaining time that we have is just how our evangelism will tell us if our doctrine of conversion has gone wrong. So I think in some ways our evangelism, evangelism in the church, is kind of like the canary in the mine. Right? You can kind of look and say, okay, something's wrong here when, when the evangelism has gone wrong. And so just a, a few different ways that, that we can tell, I think, in our evangelism, if our doctrine of conversion uh, is off kilter. First, we don't pray about it. If we really understood conversion, if we really understood that only God can call a man from spiritual life to spiritual death and only God can give the spiritual life required to repent and believe, I think we would pray more than we do. I think if we don't pray, it's either because we don't care very much or we don't think God can help or we don't realize exactly how helpless we are. God's sovereign power and love should drive us to pray. Uh, again, J.I. Packer has put it well. He's speaking of God's sovereignty. And he says, These facts ought to drive us to prayer. It is God's intention that they should drive us to prayer. God means us, in this as in other things, to recognize and confess our impotence and to tell Him that we rely on Him alone and to plead with Him to glorify His name. It is his regular way to withhold his blessings until his people start to pray. I don't know about you, but as a pastor, that, ah, that makes me wince. It is his way regularly to withhold his blessings until his people start to pray. James 4.2, ye have not because ye ask not. But if you and I are too proud or lazy to ask, 
then we need not think that we will receive. God normally blesses our labors in order that we may constantly learn afresh that we depend on Him for everything. And then, when God permits us to see conversions, we shall not be tempted to ascribe them to our own gifts or skill or wisdom or persuasiveness, but to His work alone. And so we shall know whom we ought to thank for them. You see, I think Packer's right. God's way is to normally not act if His people won't pray. Because what do we learn if God saves a bunch of people but we haven't prayed? We, we might misunderstand and think that it was us. It was, it was how clever I am. It was how great my sermon was. It was the gospel presentation, the evangelism method that we taught in Sunday school that the people learned and went out and taught. But see, God isn't just interested in seeing people converted. He's interested in His people learning to glorify Him. And so I think Packer's right that God's way is to normally not act until His people pray. So that then we know who did it and we know who to thank. And so it's worth asking whether or not your church's life together reflects ardent prayer for the lost. Or do we kind of subtly tell people that prayer isn't all that important? Just, just of course, we'd never say that, but we're just good at neglecting it. So in our church, not to suggest that somehow we have a perfected model, but just to give you an example of, of ways that we've seen uh, fruitfulness. Uh, in our church, every Sunday morning, we have uh, several different kinds of prayers, but we generally have a, a prayer done by one of our elders for the needs of the body. And in that prayer, we always pray about evangelism. We, we don't pray for people like by name, like, you know, Lord, would you save Bill in the fourth row? Right? Because that would be a little awkward. But, but we do pray specifically that God would help us to be faithful evangelists. And there are a lot of non-Christians in the audience. And so we realize that might seem a little strange, that we're praying that God would help us evangelize them. But we pray, God, would you help us to be wise? Would you help us to live attractive lives that commend the gospel to the unbelievers in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces? Or would you help us to be quick to speak about Christ? and to share the joy that we have with them. We pray that way for a significant period of time uh, every Sunday. We pray about the different ministries of our church that are particularly uh, interacting with unbelievers. Our, our mercy ministries, our food pantry ministry, our outreach to at-risk teenagers, our ministry to homeless people. We spend a lot of time on Sunday mornings, I mean prime Sunday morning real estate, praying for those things. And then Sunday night we have a Sunday evening service. And the point of that it is basically a prayer meeting to pray about evangelism. It's not a smaller group of people. We, we meet on Sunday mornings in a school, but we have a little church building, and so we gather again at that little church building, and we, have, we sing a couple songs, and then we spend about 45 minutes praying. And, and the people in our church have been well taught. We are not praying for your Aunt Sally's hip. Like, we're just not. Like, it's a good thing to pray about. Please pray about it. Tell your small group. Ask them to pray for you. But we're here to pray for the lost. And so we, we pray for missions, so missionaries that we've sent, pray for church planting, churches that we've planted or want to plant or are hoping to plant. We, we you know, pray for things like that. And then we pray for personal evangelism. And so you can raise your hand and say, I, I haven't shared the gospel in, with anyone in my entire life, but would you pray the Lord might give me an opportunity this week? 
Or you can say, there's a guy that sits two cubicles down from me and I've never gotten up the courage to share Christ with him. Would you pray that, that I might have an opportunity this week? Or I shared the gospel with my neighbor last week. Would you pray that God would use it to bear fruit? Or you know what? I'm having a conversation I know this week with, with a friend of mine who's going through a ter- terrible divorce. Would you pray that God would give me wisdom that I could turn that conversation to Christ? A- and then we pray. We take 45 minutes and we, we pray through all those things. And we ask God to, to have mercy. We ask God to glorify himself. And what we've seen is that over time, God has borne fruit. And what we've noticed in the life of the church is that no one is confused about who did it. When, when we see someone come to Christ, the, the inevitable response is, that's what we were praying for. That's what we asked God to do, and He did it. And then we persist, and we keep going. I tell you, probably at least once a month, before I lead the congregation in prayer, I get up and I read to them from Luke 18. Luke 18, verses 1 to 5. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I love that because sometimes the parables, it is hard to tell what's going on. But here Luke actually tells us the point of the parable up front. They ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. You see the point Jesus is making. God is not like that judge. He's better than that judge. We are his children. We are his elect, he goes on to say. If that judge will be worn down, how much more should we keep going to our gracious Father, knowing that we don't have to twist his arm in order to to have him bless us? And so I'll get up on a Sunday morning and I'll I'll read that and say, look, church, we're going to pray for some things that we've been praying for for eight years. And we're going to, if I'm here, we're going to pray for these things for another eight years. And that's not because God's not paying attention. That's not because we don't think that, that, that God cares. Because God has called us to persist in prayer. And we're going to keep praying. And we're going to trust God for the results. And so it's worth asking, does your corporate church life reflect your, your doctrine of conversion in its prayer life? That God is the one who is able to do this. And that we need God to act. It's also worth asking, I think as I mentioned earlier, whether your, whether your sermon preparation reflects that uh, ardent prayer for the lost. Right? If you're a pastor, particularly, your work is the ministry of the word and prayer. And in the circles I run in, that's usually the emphasis on word. Right? It's word and prayer. You know, focus on the sermons. Prayer? You know, no, I could probably go, I could probably go a year and a half without praying privately and, and no one in my church would know. Right? How would they know? They don't know what I'm doing in my home in the morning when my office door is closed. But prayer is such a crucial part of preparing to teach God's Word and to evangelize. A couple of years ago, I was, I was convicted that, that I was not praying in a way that was consistent with my doctrine of conversion. That, that I was really praying like someone who believed that I could affect conversion on my own. 
uh, which is to say not praying nearly enough. And so I decided to take the day of the week that was normally set aside to actually write my sermon, so Fridays. uh, And I combined that with my day that I was uh, wanting to set aside to pray. And now those two things go together. It's one day to to pray and uh, write my sermon. I think I mentioned that earlier. And so literally I have a big whiteboard in my office. And I I divide it into three columns. I don't know why. This is just how it began to happen for me. And and I, I write on one column all the sort of personal things in my life that I particularly feel like I need to devote prayer to, so uh, particular sins I'm feeling tempted or beset by, uh, things in my family, people in my family, private things like that. Uh, uh, In the second column, evangelism. Unbelievers have been coming to the church, people I've shared Christ with, uh, people that I know, um, people in the church have been sharing Christ with, again, church planting, missions, all those kinds of things. And then finally in that last column, people people in the church that I know are hurting, struggling, or that I haven't um, uh, had contact with for a while, but for some reason I feel like I want to pray for especially. What I found is there's no better way to prepare a sermon and to prepare to teach and apply God's Word than to be praying for those people as you're writing the message. Uh, To be praying for the lost as you prepare to speak. Because it's, it's really getting your priorities right. It's both asking God to bless you, but also saying, God, I'm dependent on you. I need, I need you to show up or else no one will be saved. No one will be converted. And the point of that is not to say you have to pray the way our church prays or you have to prepare your sermons the way I prepare sermons, but it's to illustrate how our, our doctrine has to drive us to our knees. If we're not praying about our evangelism, something's wrong. I think another, another evidence that there's something wrong with our doctrine of conversion is that we confuse faithfulness and results. So we, we, can, we confuse evangelism with the results of evangelism. So if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verses 5 to 9, Paul says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So you see, we plant, we water, but Paul couldn't be more clear. We, we're dependent on God for the growth. And so there's just simply nothing we can do to convert someone in and of ourselves. And so it may be that you are faithfully evangelizing and not immediately seeing the fruit that you would expect or hope for. And that can become confusing and, and discouraging. Here Paul says to wait. God gives the growth. We simply don't have control of that particular piece of the puzzle. And I think it's easy to to pay lip service to that and then not actually believe it in our practice. To say, yeah, yeah, I know God gives the growth. But but, but then to be completely overwhelmed when we we don't see the growth that we want. I remember attending a, a church planter's sort of network meeting that was being put on by my local denomination. 
And uh, I wasn't a supported church planter in this denomination, so I could kind of attend, but didn't have to sort of uh, take the berating that was coming for not having baptized enough people, so it was kind of nice. I could, I could sit there, and, and so the, the, uh, the vice president of the denomination, the guy in charge of the church planting, got up, and he was going to do a presentation. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest, I didn't hold the guy in the highest esteem in terms of his uh, ability to think through these issues clearly. Good guy, love the Lord, but he got up and he, he, he read that passage. And he said, look guys, we are dependent on God for the, for the growth of our churches. We simply can't make anyone a Christian. We, we have to pray. We have to wait. We have to labor. We have to plant and water, but ultimately only God gives growth. And I thought, that was great. And he went on for about 40 minutes and I thought, that was really excellent. I, he, that, that was encouraging. That was it was strengthening. I'm, I'm freshly encouraged to go labor in the field, so to speak. And then his next talk was on time management. And he literally said these words. I'll never forget him. He said, you know, if you guys managed your calendars better, we'd see more baptisms. And I thought, like, has that guy met the guy that was just talking like a, an hour ago? Because, because it's easy to pay lip service to that idea. But let's face it, it sounds like loser talk, Right. I mean, it sounds like the kind of excuses people make when, when they're not very good at evangelism. But, but if we genuinely believe God's word, then again, we will pray. And we'll be clear that our job is to be faithful. Our job is to present Christ clearly, to call people to repentance and faith clearly, but to realize that we can't make anyone do that. We simply can't make anyone a Christian apart from the, the sovereign work of God. You simply can't judge uh, any given interaction that you have by the immediate results. Ultimately, God will be glorified. If you share Christ with someone and you call them to repent and believe, if they reject God, then God will be glorified. Uh, even in their rejection of Him. He will, he will be glorified by, by them in the end. He will give them justice. and He will show Himself to be a just God. But He may also very well choose to save them in, in a way that that you don't get to see, the way that you don't get to perceive. I remember I was a senior in college and I was studying ancient Greek. So there weren't many of us. Um, so I like to find, you know, what's the, the, the blue water, right? That the, the sort of business theory. Find a market where there's no competition and then you don't have to really be very good at it. So that was my approach to academics. If I found things where no one else was doing it, then I could win all the awards because it was me or the potted plant. So I was studying ancient Greek as an undergrad at a school where everyone was studying politics. And so my Greek professor came to me and said, there's a freshman who's struggling with, with their Greek, so would you tutor this person? And I thought, that's easy money right there. No problem, right? First semester, easy stuff. I realized halfway through the first meeting that I wasn't getting paid for this. And I thought, do I, do I really want to spend my senior year like meeting with this guy twice a week to help him with his Greek for nothing? But... But I thought, okay, well, here's an opportunity to meet an unbeliever. You know, maybe I can share Christ with him. Um, so we went through the whole year. I tutored him on his Greek. His Greek got better. And uh, I, I never really got a chance to share Christ with him. I, mean, I probably could have. I should have. But it just never happened. And uh, at the end of the, the year, our uh, university uh, chapter on campus was putting together a bunch of evangelistic events. And so I just invited this guy and said, why don't you come out and hear uh, this talk? And he was kind of... I mean, I probably, whatever I asked him to do, he kind of had to do it because I just spent the whole year tutoring him for free. So he came out. He came to the talk. And uh, 
you know, nothing. Didn't really seem very interested. Didn't really say much about it afterwards. And I thought, well, okay, like there's that. I came back a couple years later. I was speaking at the university chapter. And, uh, and that guy was there at the back of the room. I thought, he seemed really familiar. And afterwards, he, he came up, and you probably can guess the end of the story, but the next year when he came back on campus, he bumped into one of the students that he had met there. And uh, they had invited him out to, to university, and he'd heard the gospel. He'd become a Christian. <coughs> and now, excuse me, he was converted. Well, if I hadn't taken that sort of one opportunity to drive back down and, and teach, I would have thought that was a total waste of a year. I mean, why on earth would, you know, uh, what good was accomplished? Well, we simply can't know the Lord's plans and the Lord's purposes. Uh, he gives the growth in his own time. Uh, anyone who shared Christ has, probably, has stories like that of, of someone who comes to Christ in a way we just didn't anticipate far down the line. We simply can't judge the Lord's larger intent. Another evidence, I think, that we have warped our doctrine of conversion in our evangelism, we don't believe that God's really going to save people. We don't, we don't proclaim the gospel with confidence that God really will save people. Yeah, I told you the story earlier about the, the woman who came up to me to say she wanted to become a Christian, and I was like, what? Really? Why? You know, I didn't, you know, I'd preach the gospel, but I, I didn't have real confidence that God was going to save anyone in that room today because I was, I was thinking too much that it depended on me. It depended on me getting it right. Or honestly, sometimes we just think, yeah, there's, there's just no way God's going to save that guy. Right? Like, I've got, a, I've got a field and I can see who God might save. Right? But, but this kind of person never. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Right? I remember I was working, uh, putting myself through seminary. I worked full time and uh, went to school full time. And so, at this point in my life, I was working for an insurance company, and uh, hey, Josh, send me a water bottle. And so I was, uh, I was just exhausted all the time. I had kids. I was renovating a house. I was doing a full course load, working 40 hours a week. And so, you know, sleep like a couple hours a night was was all we were getting. And uh, and so I would basically keep myself away from the oblivion, like off the the edge, out of the abyss, with with a 15 minute nap every afternoon. And so at work. I would, uh, I would go, I would grab my lunch, I would go down to my car, no matter what the weather, it could be like two degrees, I would like wrap everything around me, and I would go sleep for 15 minutes in my car so that I could get through the rest of my day. So I had more work, more classes, go home, put the, the baby to bed, that kind of thing. And so I remember one day I was going into the break room, I grabbed my lunch, I was heading out, and, uh, and I saw this guy sitting at the table. And uh, I knew this guy, I was, I was this guy's boss. And... Uh, he was literally a crazy man. Like he would, uh, on occasion, <clears throat> put down his headset. He was a phone operator, sitting at a cubicle. He would put down his headset, and he would take a sort of step back, and then he would run as fast as he could across the office, and he would hurdle himself into the glass, <laughs> trying to throw himself through the window. But the glass was like, you know, like office building glass. It's like that thick. And so he would knock himself silly. And he would lay there, like, just smashed up in the floor. And somebody would come and be like, uh, Mike, Jeff's laying in the, in the aisle, aisle again, you know? You have to go and kind of pick him up. I, this guy, I mean, he had issues. Serious issues. I, I probably shouldn't go into his issues on a recorded uh, talk here. But, but there's no one on earth you would think would be less likely to come to Christ than that guy. And so here this guy's sitting alone at the break room as I go to get my lunch so I can go take my 
minute nap so that I can stay awake in class and not crash my car on the way home and so I don't sort of fall off that cliff of total exhaustion. And I thought, the thought popped into my head, maybe if you're charismatic you'd think it was the Holy Spirit speaking to me. Go share Christ with, with this guy. I remember I, I felt like I stood in the doorway of the break room for like an hour. It was probably like 10 seconds. But I was like, arguing. I was like, no. <laughs> no. I mean, almost like, okay, I understand evangelism is more important than my nap, but anybody else? I mean, really? There's 0.0% chance that this conversation is even going to sort of occur on a plane of normal, like normal human interaction. Right? You're, you're, you're asking me to skip my nap to go for a ride on the crazy train here, right? Well, long story short, you know, you don't win when you're arguing with the Holy Spirit or yourself necessarily, whichever it was. But I, I sat down and the guy started sharing with me about his father. And sure enough, we started talking about Jesus. And over the next six months, he, he came to Christ. And I thought, I, I feel like the Lord gave me that opportunity just to show me that he'll save anyone. And, and, and that I should never sort of disdain to take the gospel to someone. You see, again, looking at from, from my perspective, that kind of person can't be converted. It just doesn't happen. Right? The people who are converted are kind of nice suburban people that are kind of clean and shiny and just need a little bit of change. Or you know, maybe the really bottomed out sort of drug guy who, who knows he needs to help or he's going to die. But, but not crazy people. You know, not, not this kind of guy. If we have our doctrine of conversion straight, we're going to be really promiscuous with the gospel. And if we understand that God can save anyone, if we understand that, that everybody needs the same amount of change, which is to say total life-altering change, uh, then we're going to be really free to share the gospel with anyone. I think another evidence that our doctrine of conversion has gone astray is that you simply believe everyone listening to you is already converted. You believe that just because the people in your church are church-going folk, they don't really need the gospel. They don't need to be converted. And so it's easy to assume, hey, you know, people have heard this before. You assume they don't need it. Right, they're here, so they must be okay. They kind of belong. They, they seem like they fit in well. They must be converted. And so it's easy not to press home on people the, the need for repentance and faith. Right? You're literally preaching to, to the choir every Sunday. You're preaching to people who get up early and come to church. Uh, there was a guy that I met last week who uh, visited our church. And uh, he was actually talking to our associate pastor at the time. And uh, it turns out he was, had been the, the music leader for a really, really big church right down the street from us. And, uh, and so just making small talk, I guess my, maybe my associate pastor is as poor at making small talk as I am, but he asked, when did you become a Christian? And the guy said, six months ago. And he says, pastor, I, I thought you said you were the worship pastor for the last like eight years of this church. And he said, yeah, now you get why... I'm not at that church anymore. It turns out he said no one had ever pressed him about his life. No one had ever asked him, really, whether he was a Christian. He was, he was really good at singing. I mean, really good. In fact, the church he had gone to the week before, he said, when they found out who he was, offered him a job on the spot. He said, I'm a, he said no, I'm a new Christian. You don't want me leading your church. But he was really good at it. And so everyone just assumed. I mean, he's singing all the right words. Again, he can do this with his hands while he's playing the guitar. You know? It's just easy. You just assume people are Christians. And no one had ever pressed on him. He never realized. He needed to re- personally needed to repent and believe. And so praise God. God saved him. 
Uh, and uh, I trust God will use him greatly. But, but it struck me and reminded me, yeah, just because people look good, and just because they've got the sort of the church lingo down, uh, does not mean they're converted. And then also I think uh, when our doctrine of conversion is out of whack, we begin to manipulate people. I think it's really easy to do with evangelism. Uh, it can be tempting to downplay all the, the hard bits in order to make following Jesus seem more appealing. Or it's easy to offer people all of the sort of obvious benefits with none of the more apparent costs. Right? Following Christ will cost something. Is it worth it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Does Christ ultimately take anything from us that's, that's good for us or that we need? No. No, ultimately, uh, Christ is out to bless us. But it will, it will cost us something. It will require us to turn away from things we think we love. Uh, it, it will require us to, in Jesus' words, pick up our cross and follow him. It requires repentance and faith. And so, when we share the gospel with people, we need to make that really clear. That you're not just sort of signing up for a, a free check to heaven. You're not signing up for a country club ride either. You're, you're turning from your sin. You're, you're saying no to that so that you can say no to Christ. I remember uh, a guy that I worked with in that same office. Uh, he was a Wiccan. He was a, I don't know, white witch or whatever you call it, right? He was into all the pagan spiritualism and, and, and all those kinds of things. And, and over the course of years, he, he became a Christian. And uh, he came into work one Monday morning and he said, Mike, I became a Christian over the weekend. I was, oh, wow, I mean, we've been talking, but I hadn't actually seen that coming. And, and uh, so I said, well, tell me about it. Like, what did what, you do? What did what, you do for over the weekend? What happened? And, and he said, well, he's reading his Bible and reading his Bible. And, and he said, just suddenly just began to realize how wicked it was that he had been worshiping false gods. And so he said, I went and I grabbed, literally he had an altar. This is awesome because it's like the Old Testament happening in his house. He had an altar in his house and he went and he grabbed it and he, he threw it in the trash. He tore it down. I mean, that's like old school, Old Testament, you know, kings of Judah kind of thing, right? And so he tears down this altar and he throws it away. That's, that's picking up your cross. That's conversion. That's repentance, right? That's turning away from the old. He understood just by, by the demands of Christ that he couldn't follow Christ with that altar still in his house, still worshiping that way. There's a guy uh, that has professed faith in Christ just recently in our, in our uh, congregation who uh, struggles with same-sex attraction. I mentioned that earlier. And for him, you know, that had been a, a lifestyle. And so he, he's feeling really acutely right now what it means to pick up his cross. He's, he's feeling it. It's going to mean turning his back on some, some things that he sort of said and believed and argued for a long time. Uh, he's going to be rejected by friends. There's simply no way he can follow Christ. There's no way he can be converted and not turn his back on those things. And so that's going to hurt. He's going to feel acutely that pain. He's going to feel that loss. Again, maybe it's worth just looking at in Luke chapter 9.
verse 23. Speaking of Jesus. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so, when we're sharing Christ with people, when we're evangelizing, when we're calling them to repentance and faith, we, we have to tell them to count the cost. We have to tell them that it's going to involve a kind of death. Dying to themselves. Dying to the things they thought they loved. That's going to be hard in many ways. Uh, a couple of months ago, a young woman wanted to meet with me after our Sunday morning service. I had known her for about a year. She's a teenage mom involved in our um, outreach to at-risk kids. She didn't speak English, so she was speaking to me through a translator. But she told me that she, she wanted to become a Christian. She was ready. And so I walked through the gospel with her again. I knew she knew it. We'd, I'd shared it with her before. But I, I, tried to under, I tried to address for her every misunderstanding she might have about what she was wanting to do. Right? You, you know, Maria... Jesus isn't going to solve all your problems in the way you, you might hope, right? So the creepy, the creepy guy that lives in your basement that keeps hitting on you, he, he might still live there. You know, being a 16-year-old mom is not going to suddenly become really simple for you. Your relationship with your dad might not be exactly what you want it to be right away. Because Jesus isn't some fire insurance plan, and so if you want to follow him, you're going to have to acknowledge that he is God and you're not. He's the boss. You've got to be willing to follow Him. You have to be willing to obey Him and love Him more than anything else. That might, might mean doing things that He tells you to do that aren't exactly what you want to do in any given moment. Now, of course, there's lots of blessings. right? It's, God promises you that even in the difficulty of your life, He promises you His presence by His Holy Spirit. He promises you the love of His people. Right? You're not walking through this alone, but, but you have a church family to go through this with you. You've got the hope of heaven to make your burdens lighter. But, but just to be clear, this is not some magic pill you're swallowing that's suddenly going to give you everything you want. Do you still want to follow Jesus? Only after that did I, did I pray with her. Did I begin to talk to her about growing in Christ and about baptism and things like that. Some people are scared off by that approach. I had one guy come to me and say he wanted to become a Christian, but when I kind of talked him through what, what it meant and what it didn't mean, he was like, hmm, I think I need more time. Never heard from him again. Wouldn't return my calls. Never came back. That's disappointing, right? As an evangelist, I, I desperately want to see people come to Christ, but I think that's okay. I think my doctrine of conversion tells me that's actually, for that guy, it's actually better. Better that he be clear. Better that he understand that he's not willing to, to follow Christ on Christ's terms than to, than to sort of halfway back into the kingdom and find out that, yeah, he never really was following Christ to begin with. Go to your Bible open to Luke chapter 9. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, we could say a lot of things about those interactions, but it is just interesting for our purposes, as we think about evangelism and conversion, it's interesting that Jesus, he sends away people who want to follow him. Isn't that crazy? I mean, any, any church growth strategist would be going, going nuts at this point. What do you mean, Jesus? They, they came to you. They want to follow you. What, are you sending them away? I mean, who knows if these people came back? Who knows what happened to them eventually? But, but Jesus, it seems, would rather not be followed than be followed under false pretenses. Jesus would rather not be followed than be followed in, in a false way. Jesus preferred rejection outright to false love. So can you see the bad fruit from inviting people to follow Jesus but never telling them to count the cost? Never telling them that, that following Jesus requires genuine repentance? I think no, no wonder so many people start following Jesus, or so it seems, and then fall away. They didn't know it was going to be hard. They didn't know they were going to have to, have to do what Jesus wanted to do. We need to tell the truth to people. We need to understand that that's what it means to be converted. If we have a proper doctrine of conversion, it will shape our evangelism. It's going to lead us to pray, because only God can do it. It's going to give us hope, even when we don't see immediate fruit, because we know that God gives conversion in his own timing. And it will give us confidence to, to go to everyone with the gospel, because we know that, that everybody needs conversion. And I think it frees us to tell the whole truth, to preach the whole gospel, including the call to repentance and obedience. So listen, so let me pray for you all again, since this is the last time I get to speak to you. Let me pray for you, and just for your ministries, uh, and then I will turn things back over to Josh. Lord, I, I lift up particularly the, the men in this room that serve you as, as pastors in churches or as an elder in a church. I pray that the things that we have thought about together today, Lord, from your word and from our experiences uh, might uh, shape our ministries. Would you help us to be faithful, Lord? More than anything, we want to be faithful. Now, we want to be faithful to you and your truth and your word. Lord, we want to be faithful friends to the people around us who hear us, people that we teach and people that we call to repentance and faith. Now, would you help us in the way that we order our churches, the way that we relate to the people in our churches, and the way that we preach your word. Would you help us in every way to, to speak your truth clearly? And then, Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to bear much fruit through us. We, we, we pray that today's uh, work would not simply end with a bit more knowledge, maybe even self-satisfaction that we already knew these things or that we're on the right side theologically. But Lord, would you use these things that we've been thinking about today to bear much fruit in our ministries and in our lives? Would you be pleased to cause our churches to be more healthy? Would you, would you cause us to be fruitful evangelists and faithful pastors? We pray these things, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.